Well, the title of my message today is The Best Defense is a Clear Conscience. I want to start with a question, might be kind of sensitive, maybe it even bears upon some of the things you've experienced this past week. And it's this question. Have you ever had anybody question your motives? Have you ever had anybody come to you and question your motives, especially as you're seeking maybe to talk to them about the things of God, do ministry, discipline, rebuke, challenge, train, teach? Have you ever had anybody question your motives? It's not uncommon even in the church, for us to have conversations with one another. And sometimes those conversations are difficult. And when we have those difficult conversations, people might not like what you say. And so they presume to know the why, the motive issue, and they declare it to be bad. For example, it's very common, I would say, especially in the Canadian church, maybe more than most cultures in the world, for Christians to be accused of arrogance or pride when they display confidence. We think that this is a theological thing, but it's actually, I think, a cultural thing. Uh, Canadians love to keep their heads down. They have what's called tall poppy syndrome. They don't like it when people kind of rise above the fray, when people demonstrate confidence or boldness. Even this week, I challenged a Christian brother on some of the things he said, and he said, you got a pride issue. And I challenged him back. I said, this is not the issue. You're side-skirting the point here. It's not uncommon when we are confident for people to accuse us of being arrogant or prideful. It's also not uncommon in a super tolerant, not really, but super tolerant pluralistic culture for people to accuse you of hatred when you tell them the truth. So when you say, well, this is what God's word said. Well, that, that's hate speech. Yeah, but this is what God says. This is what your creator says. Well, that's not very nice. And they immediately begin to challenge your motives. Or maybe you change your mind and people accuse you of lying. Well, you lied to me. You said you were going to do this and you didn't do that. Yeah, but the circumstances changed. Have you ever had your motives questioned? Especially as you do the work of the ministry. Motives will be questioned, folks. And accusations are sadly commonplace if you're engaged in the work of gospel ministry in your home in your workplace, certainly in your church. And this is the subject that the apostle has to address to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, through to chapter 2, verse 4. And this passage helps us to respond to this issue. How to respond to false accusations. What do you say? What do you not say? What do you do? What do you not do? How do you respond when someone falsely accuses you of having sinful motions, uh, motivations. What is your best defense? I'm going to share with you three truths from the scripture. What is your best defense when someone challenges your motives? Here's the first one. Your personal history is one of your greatest forms of defense. Your yesterday helps to defend your today. Your track record affects the way people challenge you in the moment. Look what Paul says when he was being attacked by the Corinthians themselves, by a church that he had founded and ministered to. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 12 and following. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Here, the Apostle Paul, as he is confronted with some false allegations, which will become more evident as we journey through this text, points to his past. Look at the time words here. The testimony of our conscience that we behaved, past tense, in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Even among God's people, sometimes allegations will fly across the church. People will accuse others of sinful behavior. And here Paul offers three lines of defense. Let me give them to you in the form of questions. The first one is this. Do I have a clear conscience? Think about this. Someone accuses you of something. You need to sit back and think, okay, do I have a clear conscience? Because ultimately, on the day of reckoning, I'm going to stand before an audience of how many? One. Ultimately, I'm accountable to God. Do I have a clear conscience? The conscience testifies to our motives. The conscience is essentially your inner man, your moral compass, which, thank God, has been made alive through Christ if you're a believer, and you have the Spirit of God at work in your life, and you have the Word of God, which is constantly feeding you truth and perspective and encouragement. So your moral conscience will dictate and reveal to you, if you're actually open and honest about it, what your motives are. So when someone accuses you, you think, well, just a second now, let me think about that. No, you might think so, but I know what my motives were. I know my motives were love or the honor and glory of the king. I I know I wanted your best interest. You may not believe it, but at the end of the day, I know that my conscience is clear. So we can pay attention to that. And by the way, don't let people judge your motives. Always push back when someone judges your motives. They can judge your actions. If you say something wrong, they can challenge you on that. If you go someplace you shouldn't, they can challenge you on that. If you do something you shouldn't do, they can challenge you on that. But don't let people get away with assuming they're the Holy Spirit and can read your mind and therefore question your motives. Remind them, hey, you know what? My motives are clear. My conscience is clear. I've assessed myself. My conscience, look at the text, is my testimony. That's the first line of defense. The second one is, do you have a clear testimony of good behavior? So you look inside. Was I properly motivated? Yes or no? You look at your past. What's my track record look like? And one of the things that Paul says here is that his life was essentially marked by two things, simplicity and sincerity. A lot of people blow it in the area of their personal testimony because they're exceedingly complicated people. They hide and pretend a lot. They have multi- it's almost like they have multiple personalities. 
depending on who they're talking to, they like change their face, change their face, change their face, change their approach. They're complex. Their life has multiple layers to it. The kind of people you can know for a long time and you're like, I still can't figure this guy out. They're just not simple. They're not sincere enough. If your dealings with people and business and relationships are layered and complex, you're always looking for an angle. You're always trying to present yourself suitable to the context. This will frustrate people. This is not a simple life. This is not a sincere life. But if you just are who you are, I am who I am here, I am who I am here, I am who I am here, like it or lump it, that's who I am. This will help you to win in the long run. I had a friend once, he's a dear friend. I would say he's a former friend because I haven't seen him for a long time. And I, I liked him. I, I liked his sense of humor. I, I thought he was very skilled in, in his vocation. But you always got this sense that no matter what he did, there was always an ulterior motive. There was always an angle in business. There was always some sneaky trick he was trying to pull. There was always some loophole he was looking for. There was always some deal he was making behind the scenes and that deal was connected to another deal and that deal was connected to another deal. And after a while, you're like, how can you even keep uh, track of this? Well, over time, his life unwound. His faith was compromised. His marriage was compromised. His business was compromised because he wasn't living a life of simplicity and sincerity. And I suspect that if I were to crawl inside of his mind and heart, that was also an incredible burden for him to carry. But if you are the kind of person that has nothing to hide, you live your life with simplicity and sincerity, that goes a long way when people accuse you of falsehood. Third, are your words now aligned with your past words? And Paul mentions this uh, in this passage. He essentially, he says, what I'm saying now is what I said before. You're not hearing anything new from me. What I'm saying now is what I said before. He appeals to the tr trustworthiness, the faithfulness of his past sermons, his past messages, his past dealings, his past letters to the Corinthian church. So what is our best defense when our motives are accused? Appeal to your personal history. And if it's uncomplicated and marked by truth and sincerity and simplicity, this helps to galvanize you from attack. Now, someone has once said that when we're attacked, it's kind of like you know, someone throwing mud at you, right? They, they throw mud at you. And if, if your life is porous and rough, the mud is more likely to stick. But if your life is smooth and squeaky clean like a pane of glass or whatever, the mud might stick, but ultimately it's shed from the surface. It just doesn't stick. So people will throw mud at you. But if your life is simple and clean and transparent, the accusations are less likely to stick. Now, I also appreciate the fact that Paul... Uh, has this optimistic outlook, look, and he basically looks forward and says, hey, I kind of think things are going to get better. Uh, he's looking forward to a time in heaven when there will be mutual joy, when at some point in the future, once the um, accusations have been dealt with and the fallout has kind of settled, that they will both have heightened appreciation for each other in the eternal kingdom. 
So that's approach number one, appeal to your personal history. Hey, you can accuse me of a whole lot, but look at my track record. Am I a scumbag? No. Am I a liar? No. Is my life relatively unencumbered? Yes. Appeal to your track record and the accusations aren't as likely to stick. Secondly, defend yourself by defending his message. Now, this assumes that you are a ambassador, that you are a spokesman, a spokeswoman for Christ, that you actually are public in your faith as Paul was. So when attacked, he defends himself by defending the message that he had delivered to them from God. Look at verse 15 and following. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. By the way, some people have tried to strangely take this verse out of context and apply it to some sort of a second blessing of the Holy Spirit, which is possible, but this ain't the passage to go to to build that theology because this has nothing to do with that. This passage relates to Paul's itinerary, his travel schedule, and his desire to minister to the people of the Corinthian church. So he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So again, he's defending his itinerary. You might be like, who cares? Why do I care about his travel plans 2,000 years ago? Well, read on. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, it's, it's not been complicated. It's not been contradictory. Well, we think you didn't keep your promises to us, Paul. You said you were going to come and you didn't come. Read on. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. So this is a reference to the message from God that Paul had delivered to this church. Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. In other words, this is kind of complex language here, but in other words, we spoke the truth to you in the same way that Jesus Christ spoke the truth to you. We didn't say one thing and do another. We weren't complicated and filled with lies and deceit. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, which means God never lies. God never deceives. He always tells the truth. This, it is, this is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So what's the, the rhetoric here? What's the, the form of argument that Paul is giving to defend himself? He's basically saying, hey, since God never breaks his word, in other words, if he says yes, he means it. And I'm a spokesman for God, Paul is saying, and I've always pointed you to what God has said, and I've always reminded you of the promises of God, and I've always preached God's word accurately. 
what on earth is your problem? Why, why are you accusing a faithful minister of the promises of God of lying while he's actually in the act of preaching the whole counsel of God's word? This doesn't make sense. Because here's what you need to understand. If a preacher's a liar, eventually he's going to start preaching falsehood. And Paul's like, I haven't preached falsehood. I've preached to you the truth. So why are you questioning my motives? Why are you accusing me of being a liar? Now, it is true that in the church of Jesus Christ throughout history, there have been scuzzy preachers. But they're scuzzy primarily because they're not preaching and living in light of the word of God. But Paul couldn't be accused of that. His life was marked by sincerity and simplicity. So you think about all the accusations you could levy against Paul. The ones that are the most ridiculous are the ones that are the least believable. And because Paul had been a faithful minister of the gospel, it's funny of what Christians will accuse others of. And here, the primary attack on Paul was actually his travel plans. So we need to look elsewhere to fully understand this. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5, which again was the second letter Paul wrote to them because in 1 Corinthians he references a book he wrote before. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5, he communicates that his initial intention was to visit them, the Corinthian church, after passing through the region of Macedonia. But circumstances had changed beyond his control. And so his plans changed. And because his plans changed for something as simple as his travel schedule, the Corinthian church took offense to that and started calling his integrity into question. Now the question is, like, why? Why were they so immature to like nitpick on a seemingly insignificant issue? Of all the things you could accuse the guy of, why are you attacking his travel schedule? So again, you have to track with me here. You have 1 Corinthians, which is actually sec the second book that he wrote to them. Again, in 1 Corinthians, he references a letter before them. Then we have in our Bible, 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he references a letter called a painful letter. So that would have been the third letter, minimally, that he wrote to the Corinthian church. So we have the first letter, 1 Corinthians, the painful letter, and 2 Corinthians. So what took place in between here that caused them to think, okay, if we're going to attack Paul, let's attack his travel schedule. Well, they were attacking his travel schedule because he had confronted them about some sinful behavior in their lives in his painful letter to them. So in addition, when he previously visited them and had this painful visit, we don't know specifically what he was doing, but it was, this was some sort of a heavy sermon, a heavy series of sermons. He had to somehow rebuke or correct this church. And he tried to do it to comfort them, but they flipped out. And because they were offended, and here's a little tip into the, into the human psyche, folks. When people are offended at your words, but your words are true and they can't really push back against your words, they will try to look for other perceived weaknesses in your life. In your life. And they'll try to attack you for something as strange as your travel schedule. 
here's what we learn from this passage. When confronted, convicted people will either humble themselves and change and appreciate your love and be blessed by your ministry, or they will grow resentful and bitter and they will lash out and they will find something, something you said, something you're supposedly inconsistent in, some minor insignificant issue, and they will lash out and they will accuse you of sin. Now, (laughs) I have seen this so many times in Christian ministry, it's ridiculous. So many times. And it reminds me of one of my basic life principles, that people are people are people. I don't care if you're living in the ancient Middle East 5,000 years ago, or you're living in Windsor in the year 2020. People are the same. We dress differently. We speak different languages. We have different jobs. But in our hearts, we are the same when we are confronted, and we all are and must be in order to grow up into Christ-likeness. I've been confronted so many times, and I know in my own life, it's like, am I going to receive it and be blessed by that? Or am I going to galvanize myself and not accept it and then push back? And, well, well, oh yeah, well, you said that about me, but what about you? How many of you have had that in a conversation? Well, Well, what about you? No, just a second. We're not talking about me right now. We're talking about you, are we not? Now, of course, the solution to this is to humble yourself and be open to rebuke. And if the rebuke is illegitimate or doesn't apply to you, okay. You tell the person, sorry, you've misread me. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. But so often, even in the church, people cut and run because they refuse to be rebuked. They refuse to be confronted. It's like church is not supposed to be a place of pain. I want to be affirmed. I want people to tell me how awesome I am. (laughs) Well, it doesn't work that way. Now, at times, an explanation is in order because falsehoods can spread like the plague and quickly infect others. So sometimes you've got to push back against false accusations. But at the same time, you'll never be able to fully insulate yourself against these kinds of attacks. You know why? Because half the time you won't even know they're going on. They'll be going on behind your back, behind the scenes, in private conversations. They will taint people's perspectives of you. And you may never even know why someone suddenly starts to treat you a little strange or distance themselves from you because someone else has poisoned the well. So if you're alive and you're breathing and you're being a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ in your home, in your job, in your church, in society, in the culture as a whole, you will inevitably be targeted and especially in a culture that is increasingly seeing a separating of the wheat from the chaff, truth from error. The lines are being drawn very boldly in the sand between those that are agents of Satan and the world and those that love and follow God. But as someone once said to me years ago, kind of humorous but true, at the end of the day, your problems will pass or you will pass. And if you pass on into the eternal kingdom, problems are going to be solved. So sometimes we have to endure, we have to bear up, under the burden 
But when we have opportunities, there's nothing inappropriate about pushing back, as Paul did. So we preach on. And when we do, we believe that God will eventually join his people together. Look at verses 20 and 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as our guarantee. This is a wonderful reminder because Paul here again is pushing back against false allegations. There is a bit of a tension, division between him and the Corinthian church, but he's still optimistic. He looks forward and he's believing the best. He believes that God will join them together. When I counsel couples or I preach at weddings, I often give the triangle illustration. Many of you know this. And if you look at a triangle, you have a baseline and then you have two sidelines that meet at the top. And the baseline represents our horizontal relationship. So you and me, or you and the person next to you, and we are in this life together down here on planet Earth, and we're trying to figure out how to get along and treat each other. And that line can grow short as we come closer together, or it can suddenly grow quite long as we drift apart and we try to distance ourselves from one another. And the question is, what is it that binds us together? If it's just you and me on this horizontal line of life, well, the key is we put God at the top in the center. And as I progress toward God and you progress toward God, the line between us inevitably and necessarily gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until we are bound together, not because of our personalities or our culture or the fact that we always love on each other well, but because Jesus Christ is the great unifier of conflicted people. Every successful Christian relationship then has God at the top and in the center. This should be a eureka moment to those of you that are married, to those of you that are in conflicted relationships. If you think, well, why do I, what is it that binds my wife and I together? Oh, she's cute. We always get along. We always agree. We speak the same language. We live at the same address. Well, at some point we're going to conflict. So what binds us together? Christ at the center. When he's not at the center, the line gets awfully long. But when Christ is at the center, we suddenly, miraculously and mysteriously in Christ, enjoy warm fellowship with one another. Paul is talking about this. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. God is our unifier. Verse 22, he has put a seal on us, just like a seal on an envelope that testifies to its authenticity, that testifies to its true ownership, that testifies to the author of the letter. So God's seal on us through his Holy Spirit is what proves our common ownership. Folks, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And those of you that are brothers and sisters in Christ have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And our spirit, the Holy Spirit that we have inside of us is what binds us together, what testifies to our unity. Again, in many areas of life, we will disagree. 
but the Holy Spirit binds us together in Christ and is our seal and our guarantee. But there's one more truth for us to consider. Verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Now, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, Paul is essentially saying here, um, we had this little painful message or series of messages. And after that, you were offended, so you accused me of breaking my promises by changing my travel schedule. But let me tell you this. In hindsight, it's probably better that I didn't come. <laughs> because I had some more painful words to share with you. And you obviously aren't ready for it yet. Sometimes when tensions are high in the church, we need to wait for tensions to settle before taking it to the next level. I mean, you know this in your own life. We don't change overnight. I don't change overnight. I remember when I was a child, my mom or dad would call out certain behaviors. And you know what? Almost without exception, the behaviors they called out were behaviors they'd called out before. And before that, and before that, and before that. In fact, usually it boiled down to like two or three things. They're just kind of confronting on the same things over and over again. Some things they never confront you on because that's just not your, your issue. But each child, those of you that are parents know this, each child has probably one, two, or three key areas of deficit that you just really have to consistently work on. Not 100, not 20. There's usually just a couple of them. And it can drive you nuts because it's like year after year, I keep telling you the same thing. But as a parent, you also have to monitor your child's disposition and your timing and ask, you know what? Yeah, I have a right to say it, but maybe I need to wait a little bit because I just confronted them about that five minutes ago. <laughs> or I, I just want to give it, give it a little time for the tensions to settle and then I'm going to circle back around and again address whatever the issue is. The Corinthian church, frankly, was immature. And Paul had the right to go to them again and say, hey, I'm going to call you out again. But he decides to wait. It's probably for your best interest, I'm going to wait. This is a kind of a wise move by Paul. And he continues to talk about this in chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul's thinking of himself here. It almost sounds a little bit selfish. But again, Paul's raw and he's real. He doesn't pull any, punch, pull any punches. He's sincere. He has a, a simplicity to him that we should very much appreciate. And he's like, well, I had the right, but I just knew it wouldn't go well and I wouldn't feel good about it and you wouldn't feel good about it. I already told you what you need to hear, so I'm going to wait a little while. In verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, 
but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Folks, love is not always marked by saying nothing. Sometimes it is loving to say nothing. Sometimes it is loving to overlook an issue. But it's also loving to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to those that you love. This is a principle in parenting. It's a principle in marriage. It's a principle in pastoral ministry. It's a principle in youth ministry, in women's ministry, in men's ministry, in small group ministry. We're called to speak the truth. Do we pick our timing? Yes. Are there times when we could say it again and we choose not to? Yes. But what's the motive for speaking truth into other people's lives or having truth spoken into our lives? It's love. And it is painful and it is hard and it does bring much affliction and much anguish of heart, many sleepless nights to confront, to call people out on their behavior. We do it not to pain the other person, although we know it will pain them on a certain level. We do it because we want them to know our abundant love, that in place of silence, we chose truth. In place of allowing them to live a lie, we chose to bring correction, that our goal, our desire was to bless the people of God, was to bless our spouse, was to bless our children. Paul was right, but he also understood that the Corinthians could only handle so much of his painful challenges. And so he decides to take a hiatus from confrontation out of love for the good of the other. (laughs) But they still accused him falsely. Welcome to life in the body of Christ. Life in the body of Christ as we interact with one another relationally, as we preach the gospel, yeah, there's going to be times of disagreement and tension. And when sometimes when people are confronted or we're confronted, our natural response might be to point out flaws in the other person's life. And nobody wins when we do that. But we open ourselves up to the truth of God's word. There is always blessing on the other side of the pain. There was always growth on the other side of the the gritty confrontation that often is necessary. Some principles then, just because it needs to be said doesn't mean the timing is irrelevant. Pick your timing. Pick the quantity of times you confront, call the other person out, and you'll be wise. Secondly, make sure love is your motive. Paul was motivated by love. Don't say it until you know you're doing it out of love. Don't do it out of anger. Don't do it out of frustration, don't do it because this is the only time you necessarily have to say it. Make sure that you are motivated by love for the person that you are confronting. Third, the mutual goal. The goal is mutual joy for all at the end of the day. The goal is that one day you would be united again in Christ. You know you're going to be united again in the eternal kingdom. So the goal is ultimately for the mutual benefit of the relationship for both the person and for yourself. And fourth, yes, a little silence can go a long way. But hear this clearly. Only after, only after some initial confrontation has happened. I say this because some people have the mindset, well, I heard that sermon. I'm familiar with this principle. So I'm just going to be silent and not say anything, not even once. 
No, no, you, you speak the truth in love. There may be opportunities for silence after that. But this passage is not saying just stay silent right up front and never say anything at risk of offending, at risk of pain to the relationship. Speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. Maybe speak the truth again and again and again. Who knows, depending on the circumstance. But there may come a time when you have to be silent, but only after an initial confrontation has taken place. You know what I love about passages like this? I just find them to be so real and so reflective of our relationships even today. Um, Some of you might have studied psychology in school and you look to the masters of psychology like Sigmund Freud who assessed the human psyche and tried to understand the inner workings of humanity But you know what? If you just read the Bible and you think about it, you're going to understand a whole lot about the inner workings of humanity. And you're going to understand this basic truth. People are people are people. And again, while the culture and circumstances change, the issues that Paul encountered in his relationship with the Corinthian church are the same ones we so often encounter in our own church, in our own generation, our own churches across the country. And the principles that Paul employed to bring about redemptive change apply to us as well. So let's learn these skills. Let's be insightful into how people think and act. Let's learn these skills and let's respond in the same way to the glory and honor of God, to the blessing of the church and to the betterment of his kingdom.